Welcome to the Ask Why podcast, a series of conversations exploring the future of learning and the future of work with experts ranging from professional educators to investors, company builders, and individual learners. The way we learn and the way we work is changing rapidly. Artificial intelligence is automating ever more tasks around us, putting pressure on all of us to rescale and upscale at accelerated rates while dealing with a level of unprecedented information overload. The education system, built for an age of information scarcity and around a broadcast model of teachers and learners, is simply no longer fit for purpose. But what can be put in its place? If this is a topic you're interested in, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast by searching for hashtag AskWhy in your favorite podcast app or follow us on YouTube or TikTok and catch the video feed of these conversations, which are happening in VR. Today's guest is Stephen Coslin. Stephen and I have only recently become acquainted, but have had some of the most interesting conversations I can remember around the future of learning and the future of work. So thanks for being here. It's my pleasure and fascination, actually. So I'm basically an academic. I mean, it's just through and through. Um, so I spent uh, three decades on the Harvard faculty, uh, where I was chair of the Department of Psychology, and I was dean of social sciences there. When I left, uh, I was also in the Department of Neurology at the Mass General Hospital, did a lot of brain scanning stuff, and also was co-director of the Maya and the Market Lab at Harvard Business School, so applications of various sorts. Left Harvard, went back to Stanford, where I'd been a graduate student, to run the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. Uh, I had hoped to make it into a center for applied behavioral science, but there was a lot of inertia, and uh, there are no bad actors, but after a couple of years, it became clear I wasn't going to be able to do what I wanted to do. So I was easy pickings for Ben Nelson, who had just uh, raised uh, a whole lot of money from Benchmark Capital to start a new university called Minerva. So uh, I was the first... Um, academic there, I think. I was founding dean and chief academic officer for five and a half years there, put together with my team the um, academic program, hired the deans and so forth, and then left there to start Foundry College, which is sort of the un-Minerva. I mean, uh, Minerva is extremely elite, takes less than 2% of the students, very difficult, Uh, whereas Foundry was for working adults, and the idea there was to teach them skills and knowledge that wouldn't be easily automated. That was the idea behind that. That's going fine. It's still going. It's being run by Akiba Kovitz now as a good business guy, which I'm not, especially. And I spun off that, Active Learning Sciences, which is what, what I've really been focused on the last few years, which is sort of going wholesale when I used to do retail. It's, it's about helping institutions develop new educational programs, particularly those that rely on active active learning. So we're doing various sorts of things. It's really uh, very exciting and, and I hope useful. Very, very interesting um, interaction. You've, you've kind of seen education from a bunch of different angles. So, and we'll definitely get the opportunity to kind of dive into various aspects of that. Um, but before I I go through, I think I mentioned actually in our, in our brief chat, at, well, chats before this, that... Um, one of the questions that uh, I will ask you today uh, 
has been uh, created or has been asked by ChatGPT about about um, the future of learning, the future of work. And so by the end of the end of the chat, I will ask you to try and guess which one it might have been. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll probably if, fail. It's pretty but, good, that thing. <laughs> it is. It is indeed. Yes. Uh, but we'll see if uh, if this one gets spotted or not. Um, I guess I wanted to start before we dive into a little bit of your um, your, your past and your, your views on the future of learning, future of, of work, by asking you kind of what is one thing that you believe to be true that most people in your industry or in your line of work would disagree with? Yeah, well, so I I have this view that what what we're doing is really about is about student learning. It's not really about teaching so much. And from that perspective, I think the curricula and teaching methods should be revised to to take advantage of what we learned from the science of learning. That is a huge amount is now known about how learning and memory work and very little is used systematically in education. I once asked a friend of mine about that. He said, um, you know, uh, what faculty really want to do is rearrange the curtains and you're asking them to move the fireplace. <laughs> and what he meant by that, I think, was uh, you really have to take a step back and think about what we've learned and, and know something about it in terms of how to design the pedagogy in a way that really will facilitate students' learning. And that, that's a fair amount of work, and people, uh, instructors, don't have the time and often aren't convinced it's really necessary. And can you maybe give some examples? Like if you, what would be a big thing you would redesign? And do you have some idea of, of how, I mean, you've thought about this for quite a while, and so what would be an example of, of this? Yeah. So take, for example, flip classroom, where the idea was that what traditionally happens in class, lecturing, uh, now happens before class, and homework and so on, which traditionally occurred before class or after class, outside of class, would now be in class to take advantage of the instructor being there and peers and so forth. So uh, I've worked in an institution that used a flipped classroom model, and um Asked the students after I left, a good dozen of them, uh, if they, in fact, did the reading and watched the videos and stuff before class. And the answer was not one of them said they, they did. Uh, they, one said he skimmed them. So that explained a fair amount about what was going on in class. Uh, and I thought about it, and I thought, well, the first impulse is to think maybe they're just disorganized or maybe a little lazy or something. There might have been a little of that going on, but I don't think that was the driver. I think what was really happening was that when they get all this reading to do cold, it's hard. They don't know what the foreground, they don't know what the context is, they don't know the connections, and so they wait for the class to try to get oriented and then do the reading and stuff afterwards. So I thought, hmm, why don't we divide the reading into two types? a small minimal set that they read before class, which can give them the cognitive structures to be able to understand a lecture. And the lecture organizes it for them, material. That is, foregrounds what's important, gives them the context, puts it together in a way that after class, 
they can now do the deep reading. So there are three components. Before class, a minimal set that they'll do. And you do a little quiz at the beginning, by the way, to make sure they did it. And the quiz requires deep processing. You know, like what's the hardest thing? Why was it the hardest? Or what did you find confusing? And why? Something requires some thinking. So they do the minimal set. They then go to class where they get a lecture followed by active learning in class. So they'll actually remember what they got in the lecture. You know, debate, problem solving, role playing, whatever. Some kind of active learning. And then after class... They do the deep dive, which is every couple of weeks followed up by some kind of exam. So they have an incentive to actually do it. So this is what uh, we're currently helping develop a new university in South Korea. And we're implementing this, this technique. And it looks pretty reasonable so far. And that is very interesting indeed. So yeah, you, you kind of combine multiple elements in, in one. Yeah, kind of the... The prepping, the schema development, and then the deeper interaction while, or the deeper kind of filling of the schema, while at the same time, I guess if done right, you you end up also taking advantage of some of the recall and the spaced repetition by having it kind of more spaced out at the same time. So it's, it's an interesting approach indeed. Exactly right. So that's very good. You, you picked up under the hood here is a lot of active learning and science learning. So you're right, we have the distributed practice based in there, but we've got active learning every step. So we have, the, they're forced to actually think the stuff through so they get deep processing, organize it so we get associations and work, so forth. I could go through these principles, but um, mm -hmm. every step involves them. And by building, by layering it on so it gets deeper and deeper, they're much more likely to actually understand the material and remember it and know how to use it. And so if... Um, if you're saying kind of the number one reason for this, these types of fundamental rethinks around and around learning not finding its way into the systems, uh, kind of education at large, um, if if the number one reason is just inertia or people not wanting to do the work, what what would you say would be kind of the secondary reason for for those that do want to? I, I have. A hard time believing that like ninety nine point nine percent of people don't want to. Um, there, although I would agree that there is a lot of inertia there. There are some people who want to. What is preventing those that actually do want to put in the time from more fundamentally rethinking some of this? So a lot. That's a really good question. I think a lot of what they would need to know is sort of buried in journals, not very accessible, and more than that. It's one, it's one thing to, to understand what the research has shown, but it's something else to know how to apply it in a given situation, how to actually use it to set up active learning exercises in a way that will, it really will facilitate learning. So there, there's a, a lot to know, and some of it's not as accessible as it could be. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah, I to totally agree that it's, um, it's a big missed opportunity. Uh, Obviously, I'm trying to work just well in a very on a very different axis, but definitely trying to work to to change some of that. Um, okay, so now switching gears a little bit, thinking about your personal life uh, or your personal story, not necessarily personal life, but um, what was or were the best learning experience that you have had 
And we, can you describe a little bit why that was such a great learning experience? Yeah. So for for about three plus decades, I was, as I mentioned earlier, as a sort of typical academic, and I mostly was focused on my lab and what I was doing research on. And I fell into something. I spent three decades studying. Most most of my time was spelled, spent studying it, um, which was based on a uh, observation. Um, let me see if I can put it to you. So, in fact, I became obsessed with a single question. Uh, the question was, uh, do you know, you're familiar with German Shepherd dogs? Mm-hmm. Yep. What shape are their ears? Pointy. Oh, excellent. Okay. Typically, if I'm facing an actual live person, I can see their eyes move to one side when they answer the question. And the reason <laughs> for that is that you probably visualized the canine's head and mentally looked at the shape of the ears. Yes? No? Yes. Okay. Virtually everybody does. What is that about? So you never probably thought about the ears before. In fact, if I ask you again, what shape are they? <laughs> you do think it. Yeah, pointy. You were right. I mean, what shape are they? Pointy. Excellent. One more time. Indulge me, please. Joshua, what shape are German Shepherd's ears? Pointy. Excellent. Okay. Now, if we were actually in real space, your eyes wouldn't be moving anymore because you would not be visualizing. By the third time, you would just remember what you said. Pointy. Which correct. Interesting. So what's going on here? Why is it when, you, when I first asked, you visualized it, but with a little practice, you don't do that anymore. You could if you wanted to, but you don't have to anymore. So the, the insight was that we have a huge amount of what's called incidental memory. We've learned stuff we didn't intend to learn. Yeah, you probably never really thought about the shape of a German Shepherd's ears before. And you probably didn't even realize when you were looking at them that you were storing a memory, all this information about them. So that, that fascinated me, that we have a massive amount of information that we've stored that we didn't intend to store but we can dig it out later if it's relevant. So that turns out to tap into one of the fundamental principles of the science of learning. And that a, a huge amount of what we've learned was not a result of intentionally trying to learn it. It was simply a byproduct, a byproduct of paying attention and processing. So let me ask you a question. At the end of the day, you're laying there in bed, can you reflect back on the events of the day? What happened? Can you do that? I mean, I I do that actually at the end of my working day, uh, oh. every day. But the okay, the surprisingly hard to remember what has happened during the day. Right. Okay. Of what you do remember, what percentage do you think at the time it was occurring? You said to yourself, I need to remember this. I'm going to try to remember this stored in my memory. Half of it, you think half of what happened during the day, you remember later, you actually tried to memorize? Much less. Yesterday, right. So I've done this with thousands of people, by the way, mm-hmm. with big groups where I ask them to raise their hands and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I start with 50%. Nobody's ever raised their hand. I then go down to 25%. 
out of probably 2,500 now, three people have said they did. I don't believe them, but that's that's near or there. I don't think they understood what I was asking. And then I go down in increments. The modal number is somewhere between five and ten percent. Okay, so think about that on the other side. For me, it is, but that's whatever. But that's just looking at hand raises and stuff. But think about it, flip it over. So that means between 90 and 95% of what people remember, they don't think, this is self-report, they don't think they tried to memorize at the time it was happening. So the, the vast majority of what you remember is simply a result of paying attention to it and thinking about it. So why don't we harness that? That's a large part of what active learning is about. We get people engaged in using the information in some way, and we don't have to pound them over the head to type it memorize it. It's going to happen automatically. Isn't that cool? That is an interesting concept indeed. I wonder, I had, um, when I, and we're going off a tangent a little bit here, but um, uh, so when, when I moved to Switzerland, I didn't speak French, but I was put in a French-speaking class. And um, I remember that the, so I had 15, 18 hours a week of French, basically, because it, it was it was not the normal class, but you ended up in normal school, but in a special class to learn the language first, and you had majority about yeah. French. And the teacher spoke English, but refused to speak English to me. Mm. And the method of teaching was basically just for a while what I was interpreting at the time was speaking at me. I was basically, I was just being asked to do a bunch of different things. And I was sitting there and I was like, I have no idea what you are telling me. Mm. And for a while, I actually got angry about that because I knew he could speak English. Mm. And I was getting frustrated, especially in the first few months where I'm like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do here. I am, I don't think I'm a bad student. Just tell me what you need me to do and I will put the effort in and go and do the thing. And then about, I still remember, about six months in, mm. something happened, and I have never been able to properly explain it. As much as I'm studying the science of learning, this is definitely something that I have yet to properly understand. Like, six months in, suddenly, the words started coming out, and I started to be able to not just understand what was being said, but also able to talk about it. I never understood, I never did any translation between languages I understood before and others, like the traditional ways of learning a language, right? Uh, the, and there is something about the exposure bit that you were just talking about, the things that you're not actively trying to remember. I didn't even know what I was trying to remember because I didn't understand what was going on, but somehow it stuck there. And somehow I'm still able to use it later on as you draw connections through them. is that Does that have anything to do with what you're talking here, or am I just talking about nothing? I think it does. And in fact, what's fascinating, I'm working with a with school in New York City to develop a new way of teaching French. So it, it turns out over 10,000 English words are French cognates. They're the same word in French. Uh, there's a bunch of false friends, uh, faux amis, that you have to be careful of. But these are actual cognates. So what we're doing is we're releasing your inner French person. We are coming up with dialogues and things that take advantage of the fact that you already know a lot of French. You didn't know you know it. It's already in there. Yeah. Uh, helping you with your accent, of course. And also 
using our friend ChatGPT to help. It turns out ChatGPT is fluent in French, and yeah. it, it is it is incredible. You can switch between English and French from sentence to sentence, and it responds in the language you asked about. So I asked it which language it preferred, and it said, "Well, it depends on how recently I've been trained up in that subject matter." <laughs> Which was I thought really really interesting. Uh, oh, that is interesting. I have not thought about asking it questions specifically in the language where the research is more of more advanced. Yeah. Huh. So so I, I think um, there's a lot of French knowledge in there already, and it needs it just needs to be organized and indexed as it were. And I think part of that was was going on during that experience of yours. Um, and then when you start using it, it's like a snowball effect. Because it's going to start drawing in associates and other things yeah. that are related, um, so I hope to actually systematize a lot of this in this new approach teaching French that we're developing right now. Very interesting. And, and and just to kind of go back to the original question, right, which was about the best learning experience you have personally had. So, where what would you say as you look back at your own learning experiences? What what was the best learning? period or experience that you have had? Hmm. Um, well, running a lab, I mean, it's just, you know, every day you get results that you didn't expect. Um, that whole business I was describing with mental imagery is not something I started out thinking about. It sort of happened by accident. So being in a lab and running that uh, forces you to continually confront new kinds of things. That's that's a different, I think, uh, you know, maybe you've primed me, but I lived I lived in Paris for a year. I taught at the Collège de France, um, mm -hmm. and um, I think being immersed was probably the best learning experience I've ever had, similar to what you were saying on a smaller scale, of course. I mean, number of hours you were spending, because I, I had my family there, and we spoke English at home, but we, we made a point of not hanging out with our Americans, or we really <laughs> wanted to take uh, advantage of being there, uh, oh. which we did, by the way, is great. So I, th I think that experience, if I had to look back over a single most interesting, stimulating learning experience I've had, it was probably living in Paris for a year. And what would you say is it about that immersion that made it such a great learning experience? I think there are two things. Uh, one is you're motivated, so you do pay attention and think about it, process it, because you can use it, it's, it's obvious. And the other was the kind of resources that were available. So in my case, I tried to speak French to everybody, and often what happened is they, they quickly realized I was awful, and it was not obviously something I was fluent in or very good at, and they'd switch to English. This was interesting, by the way. They want to practice their English on me, but I'd persist. These are like people in stores and things, or bakeries, whatever. I would persist trying to use the French. And then what happened was the entire city became my language teacher because they would correct me as soon as they realized I actually wanted to learn it. They were incredibly nice, unbelievably helpful. So people every, everywhere would just sort of help me with it. Uh, so the, the two of those things combined resulted in my learning much more quickly than I think I would have otherwise. Okay. Yeah, so a strong feedback loop there as well, which is, uh, which is interesting. Yeah. And, and I lost a lot of it after coming back, by the way. It's been over a dozen years now. 
which is sad and somewhat pathetic, but hopefully <laughs> it's our there again for a couple of weeks. Exactly. Uh, well, you just have to come over this side of the ocean. Uh, good, good reason. <laughs> One of many, actually. Um, so switching, switching gears a little bit or and going kind of slightly different topic now. Um, you have both learned and taught at some of the, I guess, best or most well-known universities in the world today. Um, what do you think they get right and what do you think they get wrong? Well, going back to the very first question, they don't, at least when I was there, make a whole lot of use of active learning. So I think the lecture parts are often very good. They have figured out the nature of their audience. It's an important thing to be able to adjust what you say so it's compatible and appropriate for the audience. I think they've done that well. Um, I think for what their missions are, they've figured out the selection, student selection process pretty well and that the students generally thrive there, uh, which is good. Um, I think, at least in some cases, they realize that a big component of their value add is actually the networking. They've selected these students to be very interesting and talented in many different ways and set up mechanisms so they get to know each other, which turns out to be a lifelong uh, benefit. Um, mm. I think that's probably the main things that immediately come to mind. There are probably others. Okay. Yeah, and so I guess the indeed the question of whether they're getting wrong, you you already answered kind of in our uh, you know initial chat. I mean, there are many there are many things they've had a long time to sort it out. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting though. They're they're research institutions. Um. That's their primary mission. Teaching is, is also important, but it's not. It's probably not what the faculty. If you ask them what you know, what they think the most important thing they're going to be doing that day is going to be, they're, it's unlikely they would say, "Give me my introductory lecture." Um, most of the faculty, I would bet, um, and they've done a reasonable job of integrating the students into the research enterprise of those places. Many opportunities for students to work in labs. Uh, and the faculty, of course, are on the cutting edge of a lot of the stuff, and they've done a pretty good job of making opportunities so that gets transmitted down through seminars. And, and the curriculum is structured in a way that does, to some extent, take advantage of the of their research uh, infrastructure. Yeah. So all that, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I've always, obviously, the, the um, research purpose of these institutions has never been kind of hidden it strikes me as you kind of talk about it for the first time is that there might be some kind of discrepancy between how the public looks the the majority of people look at these institutions as learning institutions when the people inside of them might exactly to your point be talking about them as research institutions and even if they publicly talk about themselves as research institutions somehow the public narrative more about that learning and I'm now wondering how much of the the discrepancy of outcomes <laughs> is somewhat mm. linked to a different identification of purpose that's interesting I, I, I think of these institutions in terms of the, the three C's 
Uh, they they uh, convey information, they create information or knowledge, say, and they conserve it. Uh, so that's another part of what they do is some of the libraries and so forth. But uh, it's actually more than information. It's about knowledge. So you've got data, you've got information, you've got knowledge, you've got wisdom. Mm-hmm. So that's a standard model of how they stack up. What they don't do much of is just trying to put things in the kind of context and perspective that can lead to wisdom. But they, they do give you the kind of connections and so on that, that makes information and knowledge. So there, there, hmm. there is that, um, which comes in part from the expertise of the faculty because of their research, by the way. Yeah. So they are integrated. It's not entirely separate. But, uh, but I do think at the so, in, in so-called R1s, the research one use universities around the world, there are hmm. hundred and something of them, uh, research probably is paramount. And, and I don't think the public does know enough that, that to understand that there is a distinction between that and comp- comprehensive universities and other, other sorts that are more teaching-oriented. Uh, and, and so, obviously, after, after that um, long time in these institutions, you, you then went out to uh, be part the, the founding dean at Minerva. And uh, can you give a little bit more context as to one... What drove you there? And you gave a few elements already, uh, but then more specifically, what what did did or does Minerva do different? What is the the different promise there, mm. and why was it appealing to you? Yeah, so I, I think I've already sort of mentioned the main drivers, which was uh, my my research started very very basic research. What's the nature of um, perceptual memory, visual memory in particular, but not just that, and how do we use it, and so on, mental imagery and use in um, creativity and so forth. So I, I did a lot of thinking about that, and that kind of naturally led to applications. So I, I wrote a couple of books on visual display design, and in fact, one on PowerPoint, how to affect two on PowerPoint, how to use perceptual and cognitive principles to communicate clearly in those realities. So I was getting, and then I got interested in science of learning. So it was a it was a progression where, by the end, I really wanted to use this stuff and do something with it that would be useful for people. So the the leaving Harvard to go to Stanford was about that, and same thing. After a couple of years, it became increasingly clear that what I really wanted to do was build a university from scratch, which is what Minerva was about. So can you imagine? You go in and you can start with a blank slate everything the the curriculum the pedagogy the admissions process i mean just everything was up for grabs that was amazing so i was able to use a lot of what i had learned from both uh, you know being a scientist and studying the nature of learning and all that stuff but also being an administrator having run an apartment and then being a uh, you know you have social sciences and so forth uh, i learned a lot about how you run things and why things are organized the way they are so i was able to put a lot of that to use de novo, which was an incredible experience. Um, and it has worked quite well, by the way. I mean, Minerva students are doing very well when they've graduated. It's like four classes now that have graduated. And they are starting companies. They are going to med school. They are doing this and that. And it, it, it is remarkable. Now, of course, like Harvard, Minerva selects very carefully. So a lot of, of the outcomes may be due to selection rather than what they did. But I think I think what we did was really exceptional. I think especially the first year where we had these four year-long 
cornerstone courses. Uh, my favorite one was uh, Applied Complex Systems Theory. So we, we gave them a worldview. So for a year, they thought about all sorts of things within the context of complex systems, which I, yeah, I think is unique. I don't think anybody's done anything else like that. Mm-hmm. So that, that was amazing. So I think Minerva Education uh, is extremely effective. It was designed with the science of learning in mind from the beginning. Uh, the content is designed to be forward-looking to help them be innovators and leaders, and it's working. Uh, so I think I think Minerva's terrific. Um, and I... So you, uh, are you familiar with the London Interdisciplinary University? Just vaguely. Can you tell me a bit about it? Yeah, so Ed Fado, actually, who is uh, who is going to be a, a guest for one of the other fireside chats later on. Um, so the the idea is to change the university model to break out of subject silos and instead have the entire thing based on um, problems. And so you start with, say, the problem of cancer. And then you ha- you spend some time approaching it from a biological angle. Then you spend some time approaching that same problem from a economic angle in terms of the charity and research and everything involved there. And then you spend an additional amount of time looking at, um, I don't know, the geography of the uh, problem, things like that. And so rather than looking at it kind of subject by subject, they're approaching a problem and then bringing in experts of specific slices of that problem but not training people to think siloed, but more thinking about the problem overall. Does that make sense? Yes, um, it it does make sense. But but what I would do if I were them is I would take a step back and I would ask, what are the learning objectives that you want the students to master? So. They can occur at multiple levels of scale. I mean, you can have some very big picture stuff, but also you want to get pretty granular and be sure that you are, in fact, focusing them on learning what you think is important. So the the nature of the problems and all that sort of thing uh, is important, but that's not all you want them to. You want some generalizable skills in there and some knowledge that's important, it seems to me, anyway. Yeah, so this is uh, be an interesting conversation. Maybe we should have it uh, three-way once. And I probably uh, am not not portraying it um, as good as obviously Edward uh, would do. But uh, uh, he is coming. He's coming on later, so we can uh, we can dive into that at some other point as well. I just thought it was an interesting one as you um, as kind of a, a different model that was coming through. Um, just to kind of I, bring by the way, I, th- I think it's I think it's I think it's a good idea. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I just would be really careful that to to have thought in advance about exactly what these learning objectives would be yeah yeah i'm pretty sure that he or at least his team has i just won't be able to (laughs) recite them right now um going back to minerva and your time there um what would you say you're most proud of um having kind of been what seven eight years uh what is the thing that you yeah, that you take most pride in. Yeah, two things. Working with the team to build the curriculum, 
which I think is very forward-looking, very effective, and working with the tech team to build the Minerva Forum, the, the technology that really facilitated the use of active learning. So we were, we were able to use the technology in the service of the pedagogy, which in turn was in the service of the curriculum. And there were good feedback loops. So it was constantly being developed. It, it both We would see something teaching in real time that wasn't working quite right, which would lead, lead us to tune up the pedagogy in some way, and that in turn would lead to requests to the product team to develop some new piece of technology. So for example, um, the students are from all over the world. Uh, 80% are not Americans. They're from all over. And some are from cultures where they're not particularly comfortable being on camera all the time and being asked things. And then, so they, they don't volunteer much. So what we developed was there's a, there's a set of um, thumbnails of each student across the top of the forum. And there's a color now that the, the instructor can decide whether to use this or not that indicates how much they've talked over the course of that session. So at a glance, it's helping you know who you should call on um, if they're in fact raising their hand and interested. So you can distribute uh, the amount of time each person gets to participate. So that that turned out to be really helpful because it, it releases a burden on the part of the instructors, which is yeah. part of what the technology should be built to do. We tried to do that in general. Kind of, yeah, very interesting. You recently spent quite a lot of time looking at the kind of future of learning uh, and the science of learning. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about what you are most excited about right now? What is what is kind of occupying your mind today? So I am writing a new book called Preparing for Prometheus. Subtitle, What We Need to Learn to flourish in the age of artificial general intelligence. So I've spent a ridiculous amount of time uh, working on the prospectus for this book, which is about 30 pages long, um, trying to lay out in detail how we should be interacting with these AGIs, uh, such as ChatGBT, but that's just one of it's gonna be many, um, and what we need to learn to interact with them effectively and how we want to use them to further our own goals. So I've been thinking a lot about that. I've been spending a lot of time interacting with the software, which I find very impressive, um, and reading a lot of things. So I've decided that a, a lot of what people need to learn is about um, how to make wise and informed decisions. Because if you think about how you interact with these things, there are just many, many, many decisions at each stage. And you've got to be thinking about what the right way to do it is, given your goal. So I'm, I'm kind of laying it out in terms of a cycle that's driven by a goal, and you want a certain kind of product to bring you closer to that goal at the end. And uh, come to realize that, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, it's really going to be a team project where it, it'll never produce exactly exactly what you want. You're going to have to tune it up some. I think that's fine. At least the current version. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe a future version won't require as much tuning. But in any event, it is the case that, that you need to have a goal and you need to have clear ways of interacting with this thing that will help you bring bring you closer to that goal. And, and um, 
spending a lot of time myself in this area as well as you know. Um, but before kind of diving into that a little bit more, can you? There's a little bit of ambiguity around when people talk about artificial general intelligence and like lots of stuff when uh, ChatGPT came out. Even its creator Sam Altman, or it's not Sam Altman who created it, but Sam Altman who heads up OpenAI. I'm talking about how this is not yet artificial general intelligence and people shouldn't be calling it like that. When you talk about artificial general intelligence, can you briefly describe why you are putting it in that category today and what you mean by that? So the way psychologists talk about intelligence typically Mm -hmm. is uh, in terms of being able to learn new things relatively quickly and solve complex problems. Those are probably the two elements of most definitions you'll see in textbooks. <laughs> um, speaking as a textbook writer here. Um, and um, it learns, it can be taught very quickly, uh, large data sets, and it even learns in the course of an interaction with it. I have found it will yeah. adapt to feedback that I give it. And it can solve complex problems, um, not perfectly, but it does so just remarkably quickly. So, as far as I can tell, it's it's past any of the definitions of intelligence that I've seen. It certainly can pass Turing test because I'm sure I don't know which, for example, which question was generated by it. Uh, none that have been obvious so far to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, you have to keep in mind that people are generally considered to be. Uh, examples of natural general intelligences. And how we have our flaws. We're not perfect. You shouldn't expect, you know, an organism to be perfect in order to be classified as intelligent, nor should you expect that of an artificial creation. Yeah, I had I had the same discussion with um with someone earlier today. Exactly this discussion. Uh, but this was a, a PhD in machine learning. Um and so like the the age old problem in artificial artificial intelligence being that everything is artificial intelligence until it's solved, and then <laughs> people call it an al- algorithm rather than an artificial intelligence. I would reason fairly similarly to to you here that it is maybe not if it is definitely not perfect, but it is the first time that it is able to intelligently reason and solve complex problems across industries and uh, using multiple parameters that that's what i think and and i i agree with you completely but so if you look if you look inside of what it's actually doing um you know it looks like it's all determinist well it's actually not because it has this temperature variable so it's not entirely yeah. deterministic but um but if you look at a brain if you go down detail enough to molecular level or something it sure doesn't look intelligent if you look yep. at individual neurons interacting yeah you know, it's the ensemble, it's the emergent properties. And what you said was just right just now. If you think about how you're interacting with it as an entity, as opposed to what's going on behind the scenes, certainly the way it behaves seems to qualify it for being intelligent as far as I can tell, anyway. Yeah. What are you most, most afraid of? If you if you do, I know that kind of we're both more pos, uh, positive in nature here, but if you did have to... To look at kind of what the negative sides are, uh, what what would be, how would you think about this, and what w- what would you be most afraid of? It, it's it's going to be a time of great change, and 
people uh, have trouble with change, especially the kind of change we're talking about here, where mm-hmm. nature of jobs and so on is going to be shifting rather radically, as you know better than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, change, uh, by definition, means it's hard to predict what's going to happen, and people get uncomfortable. I mean, their livelihoods are at stake. Uh, you know, futures. I mean, some somebody commented to me recently. You know. You, that the pension funds may be threatened by this because of what they're investing in, because it's going to it's going to be upheaval in various sectors. And so I hadn't thought of that. I mean, just the the ramifications are incredibly widespread. It it's it's you know that old Chinese curse: may you live in interesting times. There's a reason that's a curse, um, and we are living in interesting times. I mean, I find it extremely exciting. But I do see that there's massive downsides could be disruptive for a lot of people. So I, I think governments should face reality and start thinking ahead now about how all this can be handled because it's going to take take on the level of governments. I mean, it's it's really going to be a massive upheaval, I think. Let me ask what you think. You've been thinking about the workspace more than I have. I am definitely on the, I'd say, somewhat extreme and in terms of spectrum of how quickly I think this change is going to affect the workspace. And um, through that, I do think this technological change is different to anything else. And as much as in in the past, all technological change, or almost all, has actually led to increased employment, not reduced. Um, and that was because our systems have been able to adapt quickly enough around the emerging technology in a way to take advantage of it. And people, masses of people, were able to reskill on average quickly enough to be able to properly take advantage of it. I think if I were to explore the downside, yeah, so if I were to explore the downside here, I, this would not be the case this time around. And the change might be going so fast that the, the economics and the environment we live in today is very capitalistic driven, which means that the moment you are able to, um, reduce the amount of overheads you have, the amount of people you need to produce certain results in a company. Mm-hmm. Um, if it is easier for you to figure out how to reduce those effectors to get to a similar result, but you're not yet able to understand how you double your effectiveness using the same people or triple or quadruple or whatever the number would be, we might end up going at least through a period of significant um, workforce turmoil. turmoil. Yes. Uh, and, yeah. and I also think that for the first time we have, and this is both a positive and a negative, I think for the first time we have the potential of moving towards a society where not everybody has to work. If you are able to leverage artificial intelligence and you are looking at a 10x, even from here, a 10x improvement in productivity, which is absolutely not out of the realm of possibility once these AIs start to come to fruition, there is so much 
wealth getting created and productivity going about that combined with the fact the speed of change, the speed of evolution is 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 increasing, mm. there is a question in my head around We've always known that not everybody likes a real fast-paced environment. Not everyone loves this. I tend, I tend to be, I, I like it. But there are specifically, I have uh, when I have a chat with my wife, for example, she would hate the type of environment that I work in because there is a different balance that she struck, a bit different life she wants to lead. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if we end up in a society where the people that are very comfortable with this change, that like and thrive in that world, are able to take advantage of all the benefits that come from it. And the people that don't end up being left behind, which means that you have to move towards a system that somehow takes care of them. Now, the good news is that when you increase productivity times 10, you actually have the ability to take care of the people there, but that doesn't happen automatically. And so the downside here becomes, will the system adapt fast enough that that wealth distribution gets um, gets operationalized quickly enough? And there are a bunch of discussions around universal basic income and other types of right. ways that we could get there. Um, but that would be the downside for me, is that we go through a period where that system hasn't adapted yet, but the real results of the redistribution are already happening, and they're happening faster than we can cope with them. I completely agree with what you said, but I have one wrinkle on it. Um, I think people have to have meaning in their lives. And if you characterize it the way you did, where there's a group that is flourishing because they, they love this stuff, like I think you and me are members mm-hmm. of that group, um, but there's another group that it that just want to do their own thing and they don't really want to be part of it. Well, we don't, I don't think it's good for them to be feeling like they're being left behind. I mean, I think there has to be something that they do that is meaningful and is is equally valued in the society to what you and I would be doing. And and I'm not sure what that's going to be. I think we've got to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that is indeed going to be a... Um, that's a big question. And so maybe and, I'm, maybe I'm see, wrong at the speed of which this is... I don't think you are. I think when I... I think you're right, and and when I say we, I don't mean you and me. I mean mm-hmm. the society, and it, it's got to be everyone. It's got. It's not that we're going to come up with a solution over to give it to them. It, it's all. It's got to be emergent from how the thing is evolving, and we've got to be alert to recognizing it when we see it, because I think it's it. There are going to be unexpected consequences, some of which we should really build on, and I can't say what they're going to be because they're unexpected but in ways that will allow for an integrated society where everyone has the opportunity for a meaningful life, whether they're using these AGIs or directly interacting with them or not. Yeah. Yeah. So now moving on to say that we get to this new world of skills, right? I mean, I guess it's it's kind of universally accepted that the, the, the skills that will be valuable will be different. The question is, what exactly will they be and how will that unfold? Um, yeah. How, in that world, how do you think this will affect assessment? Assessment of the skills that might be valuable. Yeah. So that the best predictor of the future is generally the past, if you've been doing the same kind of thing. So the best predictor of how well you're going to be doing on a job is how well you've done on the job. 
So to the extent that we can use these AGIs to interact with people and have them do the kind of thing they actually have to do on the job, that's going to be a very good predictor and also an assessment. I mean, we can now have a situation where it's as if you had a tutor who was sitting down with you for an hour and asking you questions about the subject matter and following up and asking different angles. I mean, we can't scale that in current higher ed just because of the ratios of students to instructors, but to the extent that these AGIs are moving along the trajectory we're seeing already, and probably already, by the way, with ChatGPT, we can start doing tailor-made assessments that do a lot more than give you a grade. They can give you a profile, sort of what it is you're good at in data, what you need to focus more on, and so forth. And this can be done formatively. That is a way of giving you feedback fairly often. It's not expensive anymore to do really in-depth assessments the, the way it is right now, the way it has been traditionally. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I, I mean, I have spent a lot of time thinking about this recently. I had not necessarily looked at the scalability of our current assessment infrastructure. And I, I find that a really interesting argument where part of the reason we are where we are is that we needed battery assessments because that was the scalable way of assessing people. And it wasn't scalable to perform individualized assessments, even though majority of people would exp- would almost everyone any talent expert would tell you that they would be higher quality but you couldn't scale that which is why you end up with assessment centers and others for small units of people once they've kind of gone through a full filtering process and they end up doing individualized assessments but in different contexts um interesting i had not and with ai not only can you learn differently, but you can assess differently. And the finally, yeah. the assessment can be part of the learning. That's what you're saying, correct? Right. And and, and also very individualized. So you can yeah. give somebody a profile what they really need to drill down. And it's kind of, you know, hyper-delivered practice in a way, in terms yeah. of giving you kind of feedback you can act on. So I think, practice. I mean, I've, I've read that some faculty are so nervous about cheating with AGIs that they want the students to use longhand and with <laughs> yes. cameras on them to make sure that they're not copying it from something. I mean, really? <laughs> it is indeed an interesting, interesting situation. Right? It looks like it looks like we've not learned from any technological progress in the past. Um, yeah. Well, some of us haven't. Some of us haven't. That's what that's what I'm finding most interesting in my daily conversations about all this stuff. It's really shaking down, and that there, there's three groups. There's people like you, who kind of see the the virtues and opportunities to really do things in a way that simply couldn't have been done before to accomplish the same kind of goals we've always had, and now maybe even push those further. But then there are people that just have this fear reaction, which I understand. It's going to result in a lot of change and additional work. But then there's a bunch of people in the middle who don't really quite know what to make of it, which is yeah. why I think conversations like this might be useful if more people engage them. Very interesting indeed. Um, I'll just finish with two questions then. Um, one, you spent quite a lot of time specifically recently around the science of learning and active learning. And what would you say 
is the most underutilized concept that people, like if you've got teachers thinking about this or learning designers or people that are actively thinking about learning and improving learning experiences, what is the most underutilized concept that um, people should be aware of? And Probably why. the most important is the idea of a transfer of learning. That uh, for some reason, the way we've evolved, if we learn something in one context, we don't automatically use it in other contexts. Mm -hmm. uh, it, we tend to le learn things quite narrowly. And in order to get people to be able to transfer, to generalize, you need to give them a wide range of examples and principles that connect them. Uh, and you need to get that so it becomes automatic. And it, so it requires a different kind of teaching. Uh, active learning is the vehicle, but within active learning, you could teach in a particular way. So nobody's really designing curricula with that in mind, particularly. I mean, at Minerva, we did some and at Foundry as well, but it's not jet, it's not widespread. So that's one. Another one is this very, very basic idea, which I've alluded to several times already, uh, what I call the principle of deep processing. The more you pay attention to something and think it through, the more likely you are to understand it and remember it. So what you want to do is engage students so that they're led to pay attention, think it through. So that, that simple idea has just not been exploited anywhere near as much as it could be. Yeah. And where would you, if I wanted to find out more about how to apply this, um, would you have a recommendation of where, where I should start? Well, I could refer to the book I wrote called Active <laughs> Learning Online, um, which was published in 2020. And there's a second edition coming out probably in about three months, which is called Active Learning in Person, Online and Hybrid. So it's got three additional chapters and it's ex expanded uh, throughout. But in there, I summarize the literature that's relevant for these principles or five principles I talk about and show how to apply them. In fact, there's a chapter with dozens of different kinds of active learning exercises that uh, can be used in various contexts, and I've expanded on that. Okay. So that's a place to start. It's got a lot of references. It's got well, well over 100 references, just relevant things in there. Perfect. So two more questions one of them is actually very very quick but uh well first of all i wanted to ask you do you have any idea which question might have been chat gpt at a lot of this probably i would have guessed something about minerva um but i really it was not obvious to me it was the question about assessments how will assessments really? change in a world where the skills well, are longer than ones that were valued i would not have predicted that i would that would have been long down on my list it was an interesting one indeed. Um, it is interesting, yeah. So the last question okay. I have is always turning the tables a little bit. What is the one question you would you have today that you wish you had an answer to? What is kind of the question that keeps you up right now? So uh, I'm obsessed with this this book, so I've been thinking a lot about what the stable state's going to look like. I mean, how are we going to incorporate these AGIs? What's going to be the role of humans uh, in a world with AGIs everywhere? Um, and how are we going to have meaning in our lives in a way that um, will lead to deep, satisfying lives? Um, I think about that a fair amount. I don't, don't have a good answer yet. So if you've got thoughts on it, I'm all ears. 
Yes, I, I, I don't uh, on that one. It's actually, it's an interesting, as you formulate that and as we had a quick discussion about it, I realize I have been focusing on how it changes the future of learning and the future of work. I have not mm-hmm. thought through what it means for the future of society and when I, and, and so for the future of of our own purpose in life. That, that question I have mm-hmm. not spent an enormous amount of time on right now, I guess. It's, it's kind of daunting, man. I mean, it's, yep. you know, the meaning of life, come on. I mean, it's almost like a joke to even start <laughs> thinking about this stuff. But um, but it, but it's serious. I mean, it is very really, serious. I think we as a society should not just be reactive. We should not be caught blindsided. We should be trying to anticipate and figure out what's going to be in the best interest of most people. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I think we can stop there. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really interesting conversation. Um, oh, I, ditto that, Joshua. We have to do this more often. Take care. You too. <laughs> Cheers. Bye-bye. The way we learn and the way we work is changing rapidly. Artificial intelligence is automating ever more tasks around us, putting pressure on all of us to rescale and upscale at accelerated rates while dealing with a level of unprecedented information overload. The education system, built for an age of information scarcity and around a broadcast model of teachers and learners, is simply no longer fit for purpose. But what can we put in its place? I'm your host, Joshua Böhle, CEO at Mindstone, and I hope today's conversation shed light on at least some of the problems we're facing. If you thought today's conversation was interesting, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast by searching for hashtag AskWhy in your favorite podcast app or follow us on YouTube or TikTok and catch the video feed of these conversations, which are happening in VR.